Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we'll learn about a new Pew report that finds the share of Americans who say they plan to get a coronavirus vaccine has grown steadily since September. And Dr. Kimberly Manning joins us. She wrote about her experience as a black enrollee in a COVID-19 vaccine trial for The Lancet recently. A graduate of Tuskegee University, Manning says mistrust among some African-Americans of medical research is far more complicated and goes beyond the horrific Tuskegee untreated syphilis study. She joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. How are you feeling about taking the COVID-19 vaccine? Sign me up or mixed feelings? Governor Newsom tweeted yesterday that California is expecting more than 600,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine in the next few weeks and the first shipment of Pfizer's vaccine next week. Dr. Kimberly Manning participated in a COVID-19 vaccine trial in part because she was concerned about a lack of black enrollees. She wrote about her experience in the medical journal The Lancet last month. Dr. Manning, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So you're a professor of medicine and associate vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Emory University's Department of Medicine. And you write in your piece for The Lancet that you were excited to participate in the vaccine trial. But can you describe what happened when you pulled up to the building where the vaccine trial was taking place? Yes. Um, so I, I was very excited about participating and loved the thought of it. Um, but the reality was much different when I physically got there. I pulled up at the center where the trial was happening and I suddenly just felt a lot of angst about it. Um, I felt this 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 emotion kind of bubbling up in me. And, and as I approached the door, I, 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 I froze. I mean, I could barely bring myself to walk inside of the building and um, you know, my eyes were prickling with tears and a few even slid out. And I realized that, you know, being a descendant of slavery and a black woman at this place and time, and also someone working in the hospital, seeing people impacted by COVID-19, um, it was just, it was a lot that I was feeling. Yeah. I mean, you did go in and then you did start signing the paperwork, but uh, all of that emotion you were feeling, you describe hearing something. What did you hear? Yeah. So, so, you know, like, like many people, um, particularly those who love reading, um, I've read lots of histor historical accounts of individuals who have been in situations where they weren't given consent. When I think about, you know, prior slaves and, and, and people who came before me, yeah. there was just this space that happened where I, I felt myself hearing the voices of my ancestors, um, you know, 
imagining the women who were experimented upon um, for gynecological surgeries against their will, those who were tortured, um, those who received things that they didn't want. And I just could hear their screams and, and imagine all that happened to get me to this place now. And uh, I just felt it all welling up in me. And, and I wanted to carry some of them, uh, some of the experiences they had into this space so that I could ask the questions that perhaps they would have asked if they could. Dr. Kimberly Manning's Lancet Journal piece is titled More Than Medical Mistrust. And Dr. Manning, Tuskegee University is your alma mater. How does it make you feel when Tuskegee and the Institute's untreated syphilis experiment on Black men in the 30s is often the assumed explanation when a Black person declines a medical intervention? I mean, it's it's upsetting, right? Um, because, you know, really, um, the untreated syphilis study is just a blink on the radar when you think about um, all of the atrocities that have happened um, to to minorities and uh, specifically to Black people. Um, you know, one of the most difficult pieces about um, th this reference to Tuskegee as it relates to medical mistrust is that Tuskegee has a rich history of academic excellence and achievement. And I'm a fourth generation graduate of Tuskegee. My great grandmother, grandparents, parents, one of four, all of us went to Tuskegee. And to always hear this word Tuskegee, which to me is a place that I love connected to, to this, uh, this atrocity um, is sad. And it's also sad because uh, it really is just one thing. I mean, there were things that happened after the untreated syphilis study, and there were so many things that happened before the untreated syphilis study. And so it's much more than Tuskegee. And in fact, I would much rather people think of Tuskegee for its academic excellence and um, the long history since 1881 that it has had of producing amazing professionals. And so the detail that you shared, both in your piece and even just now when you were describing the experience for you of going in, signing up, asking the questions, hearing the voices, if for you what was operating was not so much the legacy of Tuskegee, what do you think was operating for you in that moment, that sort of emotional turmoil? Well, you know, I, I think that um, it, it, it is in everything that I do every day at my job. You know, I work in a safety net hospital where we serve a predominantly African-American population of patients, many of whom are descendants of slavery. And I, and I keep making that reference because some of the greatest atrocities to happen in the U.S. Um, in healthcare with Black people um, are either descendants of slavery or those who were slaves. And so, you know, I carry a piece of them into everything that I do. And, you know, as I, as I walked into that center and was met so respectfully and, and, and I was able to ask so many questions, I just kept thinking about all of these individuals who didn't have the opportunity to do that. But especially what I thought a lot about was the fact that um, I was being informed, but ultimately it is my right to then either consent or to refuse. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's something that um, I, I talked about a lot in my piece and in that paper, because I think that we often talk about um, this notion of informed consent, but really it is about being informed and then being respected enough as an individual to uh, be afforded the chance to either consent or refuse. And in this situation, after I asked the questions that were meaningful to me um, and 
and, and that helped me make the decision for me, I chose to consent. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Manning, Professor of Medicine and Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion in the Department of Medicine at Emory University. She wrote a piece for the Lancet Journal titled More Than Medical Mistrust about her experience as a black woman participating in a COVID-19 vaccine trial. And I wanna invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your feelings about the vaccine? What are your reactions to the story and experience that Dr. Kimberly Manning had? And I just wanna note that while our guest, Dr. Manning, is a medical doctor, she's not an epidemiologist who can answer specific questions or a vaccine expert about, can answer questions about the vaccine itself. So if you have questions about her experience with the vaccine trial or wanna share how you've been thinking about the vaccine, um, maybe your reservations or your excitement, then please give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Uh, one of the other things that you say in your piece that that really hit me was the moment when you say, um, for black Americans, the fellowship derived from our shared suffering has always been a place of connection and out of necessity support. And you go on to say the emotional turmoil I felt when signing that enrollment form wasn't as simple as medical mistrust. It felt like disloyalty. Mm. Can you explain what that meant? Mm. Uh, that makes me tearful to think about. Um, you know, it, there's a, there's a, I think of it almost like um, when I'm with my sisters and um, someone has, has wronged them, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a piece of me that, that out of allegiance to them, I, I stay on their side, right? I'm, I, I, I won't befriend or, or, or join the side of the person who wronged them. And, you know, as I think about my ancestors and how they were wronged, and all of the things that have happened, you know, since there's a piece of me that I think is not only me that feels this, 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 this need to, to say no to everything, right? Um, because they could not consent and because you, you took things from them, we say no to it all. And of course, um, the, the dichotomy there and the struggle is that I also work in a hospital where I am caring for patients with COVID-19 or disproportionately impacted. And so that that doesn't work, right? To say no to everything doesn't work. There has to be a space that we reach where people like me get to the table so that I can go back and tell the story of my experience, but also ask those questions and, and help build that trust too. But, I, but there's always a piece of me that feels um, a connection and a deep allegiance to those who came before me and, and and an understanding for those who just out of that feeling and that emotion just say, you know, I, I, I feel conflicted and can't do it right now. Yes, honoring the validity, right, of the reluctance, I think. And, and uh, that, that sort of is what I got from that, that, that feeling of, you know, were you if you were signing up for this trial and just that whole, whole mix. But, but I think the broader, um, the broader message in that, at least, that I took away uh, is that re the reluctance is far more complicated and not a reaction to necessarily the historical wrong of Tuskegee, but, but really a consistent injustice um, that know, has 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what I was going to say is also um, one of the other things is is that you know for a long period of time, black people, especially as it relates to um, being enrolled in studies, uh, agreeing to certain medical treatments and medications, it's all what people have always been lumped into these groups. And and when someone says no, when they are informed and then they decide that they don't consent, um, they, they aren't given the honor of being an individual. Whereas um, those of privilege have often been afforded the chance to be individuals in their decision-making. And so um, I, I think another piece that's critically important as we move forward um, with COVID um, and, and other treatments is just understanding that while there is a historical basis for medical mistrust, every single person that you will be talking to, Black people, white people, um, you know, uh, Latinx people, no matter who they are, they, they have an individual story and feelings and concerns. So we, we do start with the context of understanding the importance of history and medical mistrust. But then it has to be when you get in that that clinic room distilled down to the individual, to what they care about, what matters to them, what questions they have. And I'm just hoping that as we move forward, more black people will have the chance to be seen as individuals, not just because you said no, it just means Tuskegee. No, because you said no, it could mean that your grandmother had a bad experience in the hospital. And maybe as your provider, I need to get into the story a little bit more and try to support you more through that or give you some time instead of just giving it a, you know, giving it one one explanation, one blanket explanation. We're talking with Dr. Kimberly Manning and we'll have more with her after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're, ta- we're talking with Dr. Kimberly Manning, Professor of Medicine and Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the Department of Medicine at Emory University. She wrote a piece for the Lancet Journal titled More Than Medical Mistrust about her experience as a black woman participating in a COVID-19 vaccine trial. What are your reactions to her story? What are your feelings about the vaccine? Uh, if you have questions about her experience with the vaccine trial or want to share how you've been thinking about the vaccine, maybe your reservations or your excitement, call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Dr. Manning, just before the break, you were talking about individualizing your patients, affording them that privilege, right, to individualize. And I was wondering... Um, what your advice would be to medical professionals who are engaging with patients who have a reluctance, how can they do that? Knowing, as you said, it could be something like your grandmother or something else, right? Sure. Um, I think that um, and this is not unique to Black Americans. This is for any patient. Um, as, we, as we spend time seeing our patients in an encounter, you know, we, we start with sort of some general things, but 
But as we dig into the history, it's important when someone says no, for example, if I've offered you a flu vaccine and you say no, it may be because you are afraid of needles. It may be be because you heard that it will give you the flu. It may be because um, you know you you have an allergy and you had a bad reaction at some point. And 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 my job is when you say no to ask you why. What can I tell you, and what additional information can I give you um, to 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 help with your decision more? And not just for me to try to convince you, um, but instead for me to better understand where you stand. I've also found that um, in my experience with caring for patients at Grady Memorial Hospital here in Atlanta, that sometimes it just requires a little bit of time. You know, it might be a no um, on, on the first visit and that no can lead to some thinking and some reflection that becomes a maybe and then a yes at the next visit. So again, respecting our patients and where they are and understanding why I think is critically important. Well, Javay writes, as a black physician pediatrician who may have a deeper understanding of the science and physiology of how a vaccine works than the average person and how important they are, I still struggle with my own reservations with the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm certain most of my hesitation has been based in the administration who led its development and the mistrust they seeded with every other public health aspect of this pandemic and how black and brown folk have not once been a priority. Why would our health and safety suddenly matter? Outside of the election results, what has had the next biggest impact on my decision is the fact that Dr. Kizzy Colbert, a black female scientist at the NIH, was one of the leading scientists working on the Moderna vaccine. The fact that someone who looks like me was behind the development brings me faith, trust, and solace, and has definitely impacted my perspective. Yes. Uh, Yeah, uh, go right ahead. Your reaction to Javay's comment, please. Yes. Um, So I just first want to say thanks for that comment, and I absolutely acknowledge how you feel. I feel the same way as well. Um, But it it is affirming um, to know that, um, that, that we have had more and more uh, people from underrepresented uh, groups at the table in the development of the vaccines. Um, And then also, uh, you know, us taking the time to listen to some of our trusted career scientists who have a track record of, you know, being supportive of our community individuals like Dr. Fauci and others. Um, So I'm I'm in full agreement with you that um, there is a trepidation that I think is reasonable to feel. Um, But I also think that um, we have enough data and access to data and people at the table who would be advocates for us um, to be able to move ahead, at least with more confidence than in prior times. Well, let me go to caller Jim in Saratoga. Hi, Jim. Join us. Hi. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? I can. Yes. Um, so I, I participated in the uh, in one of the trials uh, in the Bay Area and uh, last week received what I believe was the actual vaccine. And I just, uh, you know, I, I understand the trepidation and I I like the perspective of Dr. Manning, uh, you know, from all of her thought and history. And that was a, a new perspective for me. Uh, but uh, for me, I just I thought it was a kind of a call to duty. I didn't serve in the military, but it was something I felt like I should do um, in, you know, for society and give back. And, um, you know, I didn't I didn't experience those same reservations. However, I did um, do extensive research. Uh, my wife is actually a PhD in physiology. We looked at all the data. We looked at all the different uh, styles of vaccines and, and what's coming out uh, and the research and the science, uh, you know, and just the driving history behind all this. And I firmly believe that, uh, you know, while there's there's a lot of uh, people that um, vilify 
our government and vilify the agencies, vilify big pharma, you have to ask yourself, are any of these agencies and people in the business of harming people or are they in the business of making people better? And I really believe it's the latter and that they, you know, they, they're, they're not out there to harm people. Are mistakes made? Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, is there a bad history with it? Yeah. But uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of transparency in this. Do your research and step up to the plate, people. We can get through this with uh, with these type of vaccines and achieve the herd immunity that we need. Jim, thanks. You know, Dr. Manning, you mentioned Dr. Anthony Fauci. Jim is talking about the importance and the obligation of doing this for medical science. I wonder how important is it to make sure that it is trusted medical leaders who are sending messages? So, for example, um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, actually, what I'm going to do is, is play a clip of him describing Kizzy Corbett's role in the development of the Moderna vaccine, and then uh, I'll get your reaction. The very vaccine that's one of the two that has absolutely exquisite level, 94 to 95% efficacy against clinical disease and almost 100% efficacy against serious disease that has shown to be clearly safe. That vaccine was actually developed in, the, in my institute's vaccine research center by a team of scientists led by Dr. Barney Graham and his close colleague, Dr. Kizmekia Corbett or Kizzy Corbett. Kizzy is an African-American scientist who is right at the forefront of the development of the vaccine. So the first thing you might wanna to say to my African-American brothers and sisters is that the vaccine that you're gonna be taking was developed by an African-American woman. And that is just a fact. I mean, that is a fact. And I think that's some of the things that people don't fully appreciate. So the reason I wanted to play that was A, to ask you if Dr. Anthony Fauci does, you know, have credibility among his African-American brothers and sisters, as he says, because I could hear someone saying you should trust something because someone of your race did it can come off as pres presumptive depending on who is saying it, you know? Um, so your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, so th those comments, um, I, I actually saw that interview when he was in conversation with the president of historic Howard University and um, also an, another leader who led that session. And uh, I, I agree with the, with the discussion that they had and that they said Anthony Fauci is somebody who generally is trusted by the African-American community. And, and I, I will say that that's just from my own experience and conversations with my near peers. I'm a graduate of two historically black institutions and have lots of near peers where I think I'd hear that if the, if the word on the street was otherwise. Um, that being said, um, I do think it's important, though, for us to always remain careful and empathic in these conversations. I love that uh, Dr. Fauci provides us that insight about uh, Dr. Corbett's role in participating um, in, in developing these vaccines. I also think that sometimes um, in these conversations, you will hear people push back and say, well, there were African-American people that were engaged in the untreated syphilis study that seemed like people that we could trust. And the reason why so many people were able to be enrolled for so long was because there were Black people that were involved. But we are also in a much different time in that conversation 
Um, I think Dr. Fauci also makes reference to, you know, these are sort of different times that we're in now. Um, I think that um, in each conversation, still acknowledging the historical piece of it and how hurtful that was for people and that there were, you know, black Americans digging up graves and taking bodies to be dissected at, at, at medical schools and all these things that, that happened against us that involved us. Um, I think it's important to keep that in the conversation as well. But um, again, continuing to do our homework, um, bringing people who are in leadership roles forward um, so that we can communicate um, to our communities in, in meaningful ways. So part of the reason why I enrolled in the in the vaccine trial is because I wanted to be able to give a first person account of what it was like to be in the, uh, the study, what it was like to be consented, what my experience was like um, getting blood drawn and getting injected and the in interactions that I had with my loved ones afterwards. And I think that if people that you trust um, in the community are standing up and, and, and doing this first, I think it, it does go a long way. Well, Paula tweets, thank you, Dr. Manning, for your expertise and humanity. So given all of that, Dr. Manning, how do you reconcile respect for vaccine refusal given today's circumstances when Black people have been affected so disproportionately by this virus and knowing that the vaccine could potentially offer much needed relief? I think that, you know, oftentimes when we talk about history, we only talk about the bad things that have happened in history. But when you think about Black people collectively clinging to one another um, and looking out for each other, that, that is an important piece of our history too. That's how we made it here over, over the ocean in slave ships. But that is also how we, we, we made it through the Montgomery bus boycotts and many other things where we clung together and stuck together. And the truth is that for us to get the, this virus behind us and to, um, and to really move ahead and stop seeing people who look like us dying um, unnecessarily, there's going to have to come a point where we collectively, uh, at least a critical mass of us agree to be vaccinated. And so I, I want, I, I'm hoping that more individuals will think about being vaccinated, not as just about them and protecting themselves from getting sick, but, but about protecting each other. And, and I feel that that's something that um, particularly black Americans can get with. The idea of you looking out for me and you're looking out for my sons and you're looking out for your grandmother and you're looking out for the community. In my piece, I talk about how, you know, I, I was feeling all this angst once again, thinking about all of the, the atrocious things that happened in the past. But then um, in that same vision, I could see, you know, the security officers at Grady giving me a fist bump. I could see the smiling cafeteria ladies and people waving at me in the in the in the waiting area at Grady Hospital. And that as I as I got injected, that that piece makes me happy knowing that, hey, you know what? If I get this vaccine, I could be protecting them too. And so not just focusing on the bad stuff that happened to us historically, but think about the times that we stuck together in the amazing things that happened as a result of us sticking together. Well, let me go to caller Irene in Sacramento. Hi, Irene. Hi, I, I, thank you for your show. I want to let you know that the NIH uh, in the Spanish informed consent for a research program that they have, they put in the Spanish, instead of saying that it's a programa the investigación, investigación is the word for research, they translated it as 
scientific program. And the reason given is that the word scientific was more benign and appropriate, and probably because they knew that uh, Hispanic patients see the word investigacion as a bad word. However, I have been a quality assurance auditor for pharmaceutical companies, translated informed consent from Spanish to English for many, many years. I'm a native speaker and a nurse, former nurse. And I can tell you that there's nothing in the regulations for clinical research where it says that one needs to be more benign and appropriate with one group of people than another. Mm. And it bothered me, and I have been trying to have them change the informed consent just as it is to say programa de investigación. And when I told them that they should back translate the English, which says research program into Spanish, obviously they would have to translate programa científico to scientific program. And all I got from them in this call was a long, long silence and a hang up. And this brings me back to Tuskegee, that people are not being informed for whatever reason the investigators or the program directors don't want to do it. And these are the people that I have been dealing with. And the only thing that I have gotten in their emails is the common denominator of, I will get back to you. She's not here now, but we'll get back to you soon. We'll let you know. Etc. Etc. Irene, thanks. And it's, it's and I, sorry, I just wanted to give uh, uh, Dr. Manning a chance to respond, just because we have just a few more minutes with her. And so, you any advice for Irene? But also, my thanks to you, Irene, for for trying to fight the fight for what you think is is more accurate uh, information that should be passed. Irene, I just want to acknowledge um, your feelings and 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 not trivialize them at all. I think that's significant, and I think that uh, because. We now have more uh, diversity at the table in terms of um, as scientists, as nurses, as physicians. I think that we are now in positions now to raise red flags. And the in the trial site where I enrolled, um, there were native Spanish speakers there that were PIs and that were engaged in the study. And so um, I do think that uh, there are individuals, at least for the trial that I was engaged in, um, the site where I was, that would that would receive this information meaningfully. Um, and I think, again, most importantly, I think that we all should have a voice. You are an individual and what you are describing is that patients who are Spanish speaking, they too are individuals and they deserve to um, receive information in a respectful way that allows them to be informed. And then with all of the information based upon how they feel and, and what's going on for them, agree to either consent or to refuse. And let me see if I can squeeze caller Gwen in here. Hi, Gwen. We just have a minute. What What would you like to say to Dr. Manning? Um, Dr. Manning, thank you for the good work. Um, I'm going to stay safe, but I'm going to wait until they iron all the kinks out on this on this virus. And also, I am going to have it done by my white doctor. I'm not going to a clinic. I'm not going to a drugstore. I'm going to have it done by the doctor. Gwen, thanks. Waiting to iron out all the kinks. She's actually not alone, um, as we will learn in our next segment from Pew. But there are a lot of people who there seems to be uh, more confidence in the vaccine, but a desire to wait, uh, Dr. Manning. Yeah, I, I think that, um, again, as we reflect on that conversation that Dr. Fauci had that you showed a clip from, um, I, I think that uh, one of the things that he talks about there is that 
this the, part of the fear is how quickly the vaccine was developed. And I think that's an understandable concern that people have. But recognizing that our technology is so much more advanced now that um, <clears throat> though this moved quickly, uh, I think that there was such urgency and such um, improvement in technology that we were able to do that without cutting any corners. And I think that that's meaningful. You know, I, I respect your your uh, your feelings there. I don't want to make it seem silly or anything like that. I, I want to um, say to you that um, from my perspective, I, I, I respect what you um, say about your physician giving you the vaccine. Um, but the vaccines will be distributed from, you know, the same places and, and stored appropriately and, and will be the same the same vaccines, regardless of where you get it. Um, so again, I just think it's important for us to respect how each individual feels. I'm excited that you're saying you'll get it at all. So I'm, I'm happy with that. And I will take that as a little win. And I will be one of the people to be first in line to get it. And I'll tell it on the mountain what my experience is like. And hopefully more individuals will feel um, safe to get it too. Well, again, Dr. Manny, thank you for your piece. The Lancet Journal piece is titled More Than Medical Mistrust. And Dr. Kimberly Manning is a professor of medicine and associate vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Department of Medicine at Emory University. Really appreciate having you on today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to producer Ariana Prail for producing today's segment and for our listeners for their questions and comments. We have another segment coming up next related to intent to take vaccine growing among the U.S. population. So stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We learn now about a new Pew report that finds the share of Americans who say they plan to get a coronavirus vaccine has grown steadily since September. Six in 10 Americans say they would definitely or probably get a coronavirus vaccine if it were available today. That's up 9% from September. Joining me now is Carrie Funk, Director of Science and Society Research for Pew Research Center. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. So what's driving the increase in intent to get the vaccine? Well, you know, one thing I think we need to just take a minute to recognize how much as a public we're trying to process in real time. We're learning so much about this disease and people are trying to process these these really unprecedented rapid developments of a new vaccine. So one factor in public uh, intent to get a vaccine is their trust in the vaccine development process. And we've seen that go up in tandem with their intention to get a vaccine. That is a really good point. I mean, we are really trying to make sense of a lot in a very short period of time. So then, you know, there was sort of in May, I believe, pretty high numbers in terms of people who said they would take a vaccine. That dropped really significantly in September. It's starting to climb back up in November. What do you think is driving that? Yeah, we heard a lot about uh, in September, we heard a lot about concerns around safety and effectiveness. And as as clinical 
trial data is starting to come forward. I think some of that is receding, but you still see a majority of Americans saying they don't want to get in line first for the coronavirus vaccine. They want a little more information. So that's certainly one factor. You know, one of the most striking differences uh, from my look at the data is how people's assessments of whether they, they're at risk for a serious case of the disease seems to be a big driver in their intention to get vaccinated. So people who think they could get a, get a case that would put them in the hospital are much more likely to say they'll get a, they'll get a coronavirus vaccine. Those who don't see that kind of personal need um, are really split half and half about whether or not they would go get a vaccine. And it sounds like people who say get the annual flu shot are are far more likely to get the vaccine as well, so that your general practice contributes to the likelihood of whether you would take it now. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it ties with people's views and habits around other vaccines. So that's what's striking there is people who regularly get a seasonal flu vaccine are much more likely to say they'll get this vaccine. Those who don't get a flu vaccine Um, our majority of that group says that they won't get a coronavirus vaccine. And so you mentioned earlier just about people who think they could get a serious case of the coronavirus. Does that mean that age-wise it skews older? Just because we heard that older people are more likely to have serious uh, effects from the illness, uh, from the infection, that, that the people who will take it tend to be older? Um, Yes, it does. So yes, people who are 65 and older are much more likely to say they would get the coronavirus vaccine than those say, let's say under 30. Um, So that's certainly one factor. But is there any sense of what those under 30 give in terms of reason besides potentially that they're they're not concerned about a serious illness? I think that gets a little bit complicated in that these things are interrelated, right? So, you know, so one factor is that sense of need for it, the sense that you're personally at risk. You know, another is your trust in the process. That's certainly a a, um, part of people's calculus, Um, people's views about the seasonal vaccine, as we talked about. And of course, politics is underlying many of these judgments as well. Mm. How does this fall along party lines? Uh, Democrats are a little more likely than Republicans to get to say they would get the vaccine. Um, And again, you see, as you've seen kind of opinion go up and down since uh, May, you know, there these differences across subgroups of the public are remain in place. So everyone goes up to about the same degree between September and November, but you still see these differences by party, by race and ethnicity, by age and so on. We're talking with Carrie Funk, Director of Science and Society Research for Pew Research Center. What are your questions about the data that the report has provided? What are your feelings about the vaccine? Do any of the survey findings resonate with you? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So Carrie Funk, how does intent to get a vaccine if it were available today? How does that break down by race? Um, it's an interesting pattern there. We see that Black Americans are much less likely than other racial and ethnic groups to say they would get the vaccine. Um, it's the only group in the most recent survey where a majority says that they would probably or definitely not get a coronavirus vaccine. So 42% of Black Americans say that they would get the vaccine. That compares with 83% of Asians, uh, uh, 63% of Hispanics, and 61% of whites. 
One of the things that I was struck by in the survey was that um, that there was the descriptor English-speaking Asian Americans are 83% likely to say they would definitely or probably get the vaccine. Why was it broken down by English-speaking when it came to Asian Americans? Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that because um, it's a technical it's a technical issue, but it's important. Um, so the survey is conducted in English and Spanish, which means that, of course, we're not tapping um, Asian American experiences uh, among those who speak other languages. So it's really more of a caveat that we don't know how well this represents um, the full Asian American population. I see. Uh, because, for example, with regard to Hispanic Americans, it, it did not say English speaking, uh, so I wasn't sure, for example, if why it applied. So I'm glad I'm glad you clarified that. Well, we've got some calls and comments coming in, and let me go to Chico in the Ohlone territory. Hi, Chico. Hi. Good morning. Well, thanks so much for calling. Uh, what's on your mind? Well, I think that uh, what's not being uh, shared here is the perspective, Native American perspective. Mm. Myself. Being from that community, I feel like uh, we have had some experience in in staying in place, namely the reservations to begin with, and other other issues like uh, experimentations and the smallpox blankets that were given to our people in the past to to annihilate and create more genocide. And th this is how I feel, of course, individually, but I also and say that many of my relatives and in the community feel the same way. We have no trust for this government's freebies or any kind of uh, inoculations, for one. And I doubt we'll have any anytime soon until we see some proof that everything that is coming out is true, including all these deaths that are being advertised as the coronavirus deaths. And we know that a lot of times they're just deaths from other issues and being blamed for the coronavirus now. So, if you don't mind my asking, Chico, have you decided yet whether or not you will get the vaccine? Absolutely. I have decided I will never get any kind of inoculation from any government or any agency, for sure. Well, Chico, thanks for, for sharing that. And, and Carrie Funk, A, is there data on Native Americans in your study? And B, there was, um, there was this statistic that about some 20% of Americans say that they will not get the vaccine no matter what. Yes, yeah, so I appreciate these comments. Um, so, so exactly right. So about a fifth of Americans, that's 20%, roughly speaking, um, kind of echo the, the thoughts that Chico raised that they say that they would be, even with more information, they're pretty certain that they would not get a coronavirus vaccine. Um, certainly a survey like this covers Native Americans, but there aren't enough in a survey sample to be able to analyze this group separately. So it's really important to hear from him. You mentioned earlier the stat that uh, while overall confidence in the vaccine is growing, that there is wariness among Americans about being the very first um, to get it. I wonder if in your data you found what might change people's minds? Yeah, I thought I thought that data was really striking because it does remind you that people are still worried about safety and effectiveness. And so um, so that's part of it. And that this is an ongoing process, I think, as we're all learning as we go. And opinion right now is still fluid. So I think 
as we get more information about what is happening and what the effectiveness of the vaccines available are, you know, that is is um, the kind of thing that keeps helping to shift public opinion. I see. So it sounds like there were there were people who were basically saying as they get more information, as more time passes, as other people, as they see how other people may react to the vaccine, that, that they, in fact, uh, may change their mind and may have a stronger intent to get it. Exactly. I mean, we really ask people that that exact question, even the people who said that they would probably not get a vaccine. We asked them, you know, would you change your mind as other people were becoming vaccinated? And about two in 10 said they would, or at least that they could, I guess, is, is really the way they said it. So I guess at this point, when you sort of look at this in its totality, do you feel like you can say definitively that enough people will take it to achieve the collective health benefit that we've heard so much about of herd immunity? Well, I, I think that's a hard question and, and a little bit outside my expertise, because as far as I know that I'm not sure that we know exactly what threshold of the population needs to be immunized in order to get that kind of collective health benefit for this disease. I think we're still learning that. And at, at this point, they're operating on on the assumption that we just need it to be as high as possible. Again, we're talking about the findings of a new Pew Research report on Americans' intent to take the COVID-19 vaccine. We're talking with the report's lead author, Carrie Funk, Director of Science and Society Research for Pew Research Center. And if you have questions about what the report revealed or want to share your feelings about the vaccine and any of the survey findings that may resonate with you, call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to caller Alex in San Jose. Hi, Alex. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. Sure. Um, in, what, what I'm seeing generally is uh, I kind of see more. It's like same with, same like with news. We hear more editorials instead of facts. And uh, as a member of audience, I'd like to have uh, more facts presented to me, more studies with a uh, chart charts, studies, actually facts, so that I will, facts will showing uh, what are the, uh, what's known, what's unknown in terms of side effects, possible side effects, where we stand, so what's the situation with that, instead of saying, yeah, this many people are saying, yes, they will take it, this many people say that they don't feel like they will take it, that's my, my concern about vaccination overall, and this specific example about the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, Alex, so thanks. Yes. Well, this specific show is is really about research data and survey findings around the intent to take the COVID-19 vaccine. We have had and will definitely continue to have shows that really dig into the vaccine itself, uh, side effects sort of with with doctors and, and experts in that arena. But I certainly appreciate um, appreciate that comment and understand why that kind of information is important. And Carrie Funk, it really is that kind of information that your survey suggests can potentially be powerful and persuasive down the line. Absolutely. And, and you know, and we take the caller's point that, that right now people are judging what they would do when a vaccine becomes available. And while that seems like it's around the corner now, it's not yet available. So people will be making these decisions as, as it becomes so.
Yes, that's such an important point. I mean, our governor, for example, did mention that we would be getting hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of doses of the vaccine by the end of this year uh, if FDA, FDA approvals all go as planned. But that widespread distribution is still a long ways off. Susan writes, the fact that the vaccine did not come out right in time for the election made me have more confidence in the process. And so that sort of gets at how this did kind of fall, uh, that partisanship uh, can play a role in terms of people's trust and how things play out politically can play a role in people's trust in this. Carrie Funk. Yeah, you know, we definitely uh, saw that and uh, uptick between September and November in terms of people's confidence that the vaccine development process was um, uh, actually just that they had a great deal of it, that they had stronger levels of confidence in it. And really their broader levels of confidence in, science, in scientists to act in the best interests of the public, these kinds of things also run hand in hand. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that. So it sounded like that there has been a slight uptick in confidence in scientists. Can you describe some of those results? Sure. You know, I mean, this is one of the questions that has been going on since the coronavirus outbreak is how will this impact public trust in science? And in particular, because science is really at a, at a, at a kind of spotlight moment that it hasn't been before. Um, and what we're seeing in Pew Research Center surveys is, is an increase. It's, it's a modest increase, but it is statistically significant um, in public confidence in scientists to act in the best interests of the public. There's a caveat to that, and it's a pretty big one, which is that that uptick has not been uniform across the American public. We're seeing that increase among Democrats, but not among Republicans. Well, that's interesting. Thomas writes, isn't the increase in trust of the vaccine in part dependent on the messenger? As we hear more from actual scientists and less, if at all, from administration mouthpieces, including the president himself, about the vaccine's efficacy, doesn't it make sense that we'll come to believe in it more? Um, it sounds like that's a stronger possibility among Democrats from your study, given the fact that 55% say they have a great deal of confidence in scientists compared with 22% of Republicans, but I am struck by just how low that baseline number is, that it was 35% confidence in scientists before the pandemic took hold, and now it's 39%. And as you said, it's small, but significant, but it does sound like you feel like it does play a role in this overall uh, picture that you're getting from uh, people about their intent to take it. Um, absolutely. So, I mean, what we're seeing in terms of uh, public trust and scientists is this growing political divide. So you're seeing an overall uptick, but we're seeing this increasing partisan division around this issue. Um, it's actually the widest that we've seen since we started measuring this in 2016, so roughly four years ago. Um, that's that's a, a kind of a new landscape for scientists to navigate. How do they build common ground when people are seeing their work from a more politicized lens? Yes. I mean, one of the interrelated factors that I was struck by was that trust in the vaccine development process um, plays a role in what you see as driving the growth in intent to get the vaccine. And of course, 
the vaccine development process involves scientists. So there really are a lot of different factors at play here. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I, I think that's one of the special elements of the moment is that we are all learning so much about a disease we didn't know existed and, and we're learning as we go. This is really putting a spotlight on some of the ups and downs of knowledge development in the scientific process. Well, Liz writes, I'm a 55-year-old white female and I intend to get the vaccine as soon as it becomes available to me. As a school bus driver, I've been unemployed since March and everything that can be done to get our children back into their classrooms is a priority for me. I will get the vaccine for those students whose lives that have been entrusted to me. I am the one who has never gotten an annual flu vaccine because I strive to live a lifestyle of organic, healthy living. I take no medications and see my doctor once every two years for my driving certificates physical. Well, Carrie Funk, thank you so much for sharing with us the, the data of your recent report. I'm sure that this is something that you will be following ongoing and for giving us some insight into what might be driving the results. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. You're listening to Forum. Thanks to Ariana Prail for producing today's segments. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.